Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffitt, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. Hello, welcome to our listeners. This is podcast number 14 of the book. Today we interviewed Dr. Andy Woods, pastor of Sugarland Bible Church and president of Chafer Seminary. We will be asking him questions about the book entitled The Coming Kingdom, What is the Kingdom, and How is Kingdom Now Theology Changing the Focus of the Church? I believe this is a critical topic for the church today. This is true, especially in light of the events that are going on all around us with the move towards globalism, one world government, and the electronic tracking systems that are now taking place. I'd like to introduce my fellow podcasters. First of all, there's Gary Karwaski and Gabriel Penfield. Gary Karwaski, fellow Cubs fan. This is fan. the second time. Fellow Cubs fan, Gary Karwaski. Yeah. This is the second time we've welcomed Dr. Woods to our program. Let me share just a bit with you about his background. Andy became a believer in high school. He earned a BA in business administration and political science at the University of Redlands. He pursued his law degree at Whittier Law School. He then practiced law while teaching business and law and serving as interim pastor of Rivera First Baptist Church. He then deepened his biblical foundation at Chafer and Talbot Seminaries before he moved on to Dallas Seminary, where he received his THM and his PhD. He became professor of Bible uh, for eight years at the College of Bible, uh, Biblical Studies in Houston. Then Chafer Seminary came calling, and he became their president, I believe, in 2017. His goal his stated goal was to advance the distinctives of biblical education. However, his passion remains with the church, where he's pastored the, the church, Sugarland Bible Church, for the past 16 years. During those years, he has penned many articles for theological journals and published four books. He's published Babylon, the bookends of prophetic history. He's published the Falling Away, Spiritual Departure, Ever Reforming, and The Middle East Meltdown. Today, however, we look at his first book, I believe, wasn't it, Andy? Was it your first book? Mm -hmm. Yep. The Coming Kingdom. Now, Andy speaks at prophecy conferences around the world and in our country. And recently, Sugarland Bible Church hosted its own first Bible conference this past May 14th and 15th to celebrate, I believe it was the anniversary anniversary of Israel's founding. Andy is also a huge presence on the internet. His viewers find countless hours of biblical teaching on every book of the Bible, as well as many topics. You can also see Andy's pastor's point of view every Thursday or Friday. Last August, we interviewed Andy about his previous book, Ever Reforming, and we thank him for joining us. Welcome, Dr. Woods. 
Yeah, thank you, Scott, and thank you for that uh, very warm introduction there. We welcome you, and I should not fail to mention your greatest achievement in life. That is being married to Anne for 25 years mm-hmm. and having the, the lovely uh, daughter named Sarah as a result. Now, I always begin our time with the same question, Andy. Why did you choose to write this book? Well, I had, you know, just gone through Dallas Seminary, and I felt there was a lot of confusion about the kingdom that I heard there, not from everyone, but from some. Um, And I felt like everywhere I turned, you know, one evangelical or another was saying they were bringing in the kingdom or building the kingdom or they were hosting kingdom builders conferences and... I just decided it was time to reclaim what the Bible actually says about it. And I felt this was a area of confusion, really going all the way back to the fourth century, that Satan has confused us on this because when you're confused on the kingdom, you know, you're confused on the, what the church is supposed to be doing. So that's probably why I went into this subject. Okay. In the past, there's been two great books written by dispensationalists on the kingdom. Yeah. One was by George Peters and the other by Alvin, Alvin McLean, which you, I believe, quote in your book quite a few times. Quite often. Yeah, and quite often. Bo- both of them were excellent works, but they could be laborious to the everyday reader. Was your book more aimed at the contemporary reader? Well, you know, as I try to say in the book, I really wasn't uh, coming up with anything new. I mean, this this view of the kingdom you will find with first Peters and then McLean. But I felt that their stuff was older. You know, mm-hmm. Peters wrote, you know, long time ago. And uh, McLean, I think, wrote that book in the 50s or 60s. And so their conclusions really weren't being contemporized against the latest scholarly attacks. And so I sort of wanted to update their findings, but make them more relevant to what modern scholars were saying, and to show really that their conclusions still hold up, you know, under close uh, close scrutiny. Yeah, seems like we have to repeat this point quite often, um, I, especially like at the end of your third, the second part, where you kind of just face the common claims against um, a literal understanding of the kingdom, literal thousand years, and you just go point through point, and I've heard every single point, and you just rebut them nicely quickly and that's a great part um but before we start talking about that how important is one's hermeneutic when understanding the bible is understanding through a literal hermeneutic is that important or is that just like a secondary thing well you know it's interesting nobody would ever question literal interpretation in the gospels Mm. unless they're a liberal um Mm -hmm. so everybody uses it there all the all of, you know, professing Christendom, they just question it in certain areas of the Bible. So I guess my point is if it's sufficient to get to truth in the Gospels, you know, the resurrection, the crucifixion, the virgin birth, why wouldn't you use it everywhere else in the Scripture? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just think uh, literal, whenever possible, from Genesis to Revelation is, is the way to go to understand the kingdom or anything in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, 
unless you can't figure it out as a literal piece. Because you have certain things. You have, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, figures of speech. You have things like that that are exceptional. But let's get right down to, we don't have a lot of time on this subject. Let's get right down to asking the question, just what is the kingdom according to the scriptures? Well, I think your best definition of the kingdom is right there in Genesis 1, where it says God vested man and his wife with authority. And in verses 26 through 28, you'll see authority language, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, dominion and take authority. And so God the Father is ruling over the first Adam, and the first Adam is governing creation for God. And that's the kingdom. That's the theocratic kingdom. And that's what was lost in Genesis 3 when the authority structure got uh, inverted, where our forebears started listening to the animals, in particular a talking snake, <laughs> rather than governing the animals on God the Father's behalf. And so once that happened, uh, the, the theocratic kingdom was lost to the world. And the story of the Bible is how that theocratic kingdom is brought back. And we know it will be brought back in the thousand years where God the Father is going to rule over the, not the first Adam, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And he's going to rule over this earth, uh, governing that for God. And so that's my best understanding of what the kingdom is. Uh, just want to make a quick point that this theocratic kingdom is not to be confused with the universal kingdom. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Because there's a sense in which God is always ruling directly. Uh-huh. So that's, that was never challenged. That couldn't be challenged or God wouldn't be God. What we're talking about is a delegated authority to an agent where he governs for God. So when studying a passage, how can you tell the difference between a theocratic theocratic kingdom and the universal kingdom? How can you tell that difference? Well, the theocratic kingdom is um, something that's a lot of times conditional. Like it'll say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The universal kingdom is never conditional. The theocratic kingdom, typically when it's described as future, it's something yet to be restored. Hmm. But passages about the universal kingdom describe God ruling right now. Uh, the theocratic kingdom typically involves um, a theocratic administrator, somebody who governs for God, but the universal kingdom is God's direct rule. And so there's just some different ways, you know, to sort sort the two out. They would call that the sovereignty of God, the universal sure. kingdom of God. Him. Now, um, you argue in your book that Adam was the first theocratic administrator put in place by God. And you say the storyline of the Bible is sort of a uh, trying to find or, or replace that theocratic uh, administrator and that God used um, first Moses and and uh, Joshua and judges and then kings in that place, but none of them actually uh, sufficed. And so it's wrapped up in the coming theocratic administrator who will be the Messiah King. Can you help flesh that out and explain that to our listeners just a little bit more? Well, I think the theocratic kingdom was lost, you know, in Genesis 3. 
Um, but I do believe that it was restored sort of in a smaller sense at Mount Sinai. So from the time of Moses, and actually Paul mentions the, the darkness in between Adam and Moses in Romans 5, but really from Moses all the way until you have the last reigning king, uh, a man named Zedekiah reigning on David's throne over Jerusalem, you know, that whole period, which is is probably over 800 years, you know, it was kind of restored in type in a smaller sense. In other words, God, as he was dealing with Israel during that time period, is trying to show the world what it could be like uh, if Israel was in faith, because then that theocratic kingdom would extend to the earth. But as you say, Israel had a responsibility to enthrone the king of God's choosing. And boy, did they get it wrong. Didn't right, happen that way. <laughs> right out of the gate, they got it wrong. They picked Saul, who first of all is from the wrong tribe. You know, he's from Benjamin, and the kings are supposed to be from Judah. And so the moment uh, Ezekiel has the vision of the Shekinah glory of God leaving the temple, that would be temple number one, you know, before Nebuchadnezzar uh, took the nation into the captivity is the moment that theocratic kingdom disappeared from the earth. And even in that limited sense, as I'm trying to describe it, and it really won't be restored until the Shekinah glory of God re-enters, this time, Temple 4. Mm -hmm. And everything in between is a time period called the Times of the Gentiles that's sort of fleshed out in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, where Israel would not have the kingdom in any sense, um, she would be trampled down by various Gentile powers. And that's going to continue until Israel enthrones the king of God's choosing, which they had a golden opportunity to do in the first century, but turned it down. But Israel is all is the nation that gets it right the second time. In fact, that's the point of Stephen's speech in Acts 7. That's what got him stoned to death. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said, you guys always get it right the second time, and you're getting it wrong right now. And they liked it so much, they killed him right there on the spot as they were grinding their teeth at him, and Saul of Tarsus was holding the cloaks of those, throwing the stones. But, you know, prophetically, we know Israel will get it right at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, and they will enthrone the king of God's own choosing, and then you'll have that paves into way into the millennial kingdom where what was lost in Eden gets restored. And that's why God can't allow this earth to go out of existence until that structure comes back or else God loses, which can't happen. Yeah, uh, This theocratic kingdom has to be reasserted over planet Earth. So that's kind of the big picture of the whole thing. Yeah, that's a long timeline, isn't it? Yes. Um, let's go back to what you mentioned about it being offered in the uh, first century. Uh, who offered it? And um, was it a legitimate offer to offer the kingdom to the Jews in the first century? Well, it was offered by John the Baptist through the expression, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, verse 2. And then it was offered by Jesus himself through the same expression, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And then when Jesus sent out the twelve, as it was offered a third time, Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7. And who was it offered to? He said in Matthew 10, 
5 through 7, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at at hand. That's who offered it and who it was offered to. And they had a unique opportunity to enthrone the king of God's own choosing because the Messiah, the king, was there. And had they met that condition, and you'll find that condition laid out in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, had they met the condition, the kingdom would have materialized. So was it legitimate? I think it was absolutely legitimate. Those are real offers, as you read early Matthew. And Jesus even said, you know, they they wanted, you remember John the Baptist was kind of discouraged in prison, uh, wanting to know, you know, are you the king? And let's get the show on the road here. And Jesus made the statement, he said, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Mm -hmm. In other words, the whole program could be fulfilled now if the nation's leadership had enthroned the king on the king's terms. And I I read Matthew 1 through 12. 12 is where it's rejected. Right. But Matthew 1 through 11, boy, it sure looks authentic to me. doesn't look fake to me at all. Yeah, the issue often comes down to is statement. The, the first thing people look at when they're, when they're a new Christian or when they're first reading the Bible, they'll go to the New Testament. Understandable. But you yeah. go to the New Testament, you're forgetting a lot of the Old Testament promises about the kingdom. Um, so that's kind of one of the main issues. But what, why do you, when you mention the idea of the coming kingdom, when you mention the idea of Jesus offering the kingdom, people go crazy over that. Like they don't understand that. They think you're crazy. They think, what are you even talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Why do you think people think that? Why is that a common thought now? Well, I think it's what you just said. You know, it's, you know, when you, when you see the word kingdom in the new Testament, like in Matthew three, verse two, where John offers it, it's never defined. It, it doesn't explain what the kingdom is. It's just the Greek word basileia. And, and it's what you just said. Most people, they're not starting with the beginning of the book. Mm. You, have to, you have to read the book beginning to end to fill in the right definition. It's like the word uh, redemption. You know, what does that mean? You see the word redemption in the New Testament. Well, if you understood the Exodus, how God releases a nation from bondage through the payment of the Passover lamb. Now we've got a meaning to pour into the word. Now I'm getting that meaning from the Old Testament. And that's exactly what you have to do with the doctrine of the kingdom. And and people don't do that. They want to fill it up with their own ideology. A lot of times it's politics, whether they're coming from the left. And sadly, I've seen guys on the right wing politically do this. Uh, They just come in with their own ideology and make the kingdom whatever their personal politics happens to be because it's convenient to do things that way. Um, And they're not filling the term up with the meaning already developed in the Old Testament. And I think that's the reason – that's the answer to your question. They're not – their starting point is wrong. Don't they take that question that – or statement, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and they turn it – into a salvific, a salvific statement rather than what it really is. And that causes a lot of confusion for people. It causes a lot of confusion. Um, there's a big difference between kingdom gospel and personal gospel. Mm-hmm. Those, those are two different animals, if I can use that expression. 
gospel means good news. That's all it means. Good news about what? Well, with kingdom gospel, it's the overthrow of Rome and the establishment of the millennium. With personal gospel, it's salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, so I don't have to spend eternity into the lake of fire. So when you see the word gospel in the Bible, you can't just read you know one definition into it. You've got to read the definition into it that the context calls for. And I know of one preacher that's very prominent um, who in his book on Lordship Salvation uh, where he basically gets the gospel wrong you know the gospel is a commitment gospel rather than something you receive as a free gift if you read what he says very carefully part of the reason he thinks that is he doesn't see a distinction between kingdom offer and personal gospel so he thinks what John the Baptist was preaching was a personal gospel, and it was not. And that confuses, in my opinion, his presentation of the gospel in the present. So this, this is actually a, a huge deal, and it leads to a lot of confusion if you don't yeah. get this straight. It's like dominoes. Everything just yeah. keeps falling just, the wrong yeah, way. It does. Um, let's get on to the aberration here that you deal with in the book, uh, because that leads into the uh, the last section of your book, which I thought was... Uh, probably my favorite part, what does it matter what one believes about the kingdom? So there is a kingdom aberration going on. Uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. That kind of, kind of, it's been around for a long time, but it really got uh, further developed in the early nineties by a couple of Dallas seminary guys. Uh, let's, let's talk about that just a little bit as well. Yeah. I, talking I, about here? Uh, progress, I guess you're talking about progressive exactly. dispensationalism. Which I don't even think they're dispensational. Well, it's it's not progressive or dispensational. Yes, yeah it's, yeah. it's one of the most misnamed things out there. You know, in my opinion, and I sat under that kind of stuff for about 10 years, so I know a little bit about it. it it's basically ecumenical. It's trying to bridge a gap between dispensationalists and what's called reform theology or covenant uh. theology. And those are two systems that you can't merge together because their starting point is a different place. Uh, reform theology has their covenant of grace yeah. not mentioned right. in the Bible that they impose on the biblical text. Dispensationalism, mm -hmm. on the other mm -hmm. hand, Start. We don't have covenants unless they're mentioned in the Bible. There's a word in Hebrew that's used for covenant called berith, mm -hmm. and if you don't have that word there, you can't find a covenant. So I guess my point is those two systems, they're, they're completely different, and you can't merge them together because their starting point is different. Well, progressive dispensationalism tried to find you know common ground, you know middle ground mania, I call it sometimes, you know, between two opposites. And it's sort of an outworking of postmodernism where no one has the truth according to postmodernism. So the truth is in the middle sometimes where opposites uh, agree on something. There's, there's where truth is. So that's where progressive dispensationalism came out of. It didn't come out of a careful exegesis of the passages, although they claim it did. It really came out of a desire for a meeting of the minds, you know, with the R.C. Sprouls and others of the world where, okay, we'll meet you halfway on the kingdom. 
you know, we may not believe we're in the complete kingdom, but we're in the already phase of the kingdom. And we, we don't believe Jesus is functioning now as high priest after the order of Melchizedek, according to the book of Hebrews, but he's actually reigning now from David's throne, which we're told now is in heaven. And we're going to come up with a hermeneutic that's not literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, but we're going to call it a complementary hermeneutic, right. where and we don't think the New Testament rewrites the Old, but it complements it by adding layers of meaning that the Old Testament folks didn't see. So when you really study all the particulars, it's just a mediating ground between two opposites, and that's where they think truth is. And so I think the whole thing is largely ecumenical rather than exegetical. Yeah, I mean, this all comes down to the... What's the motivation? I'm sorry. What's the motivation for intelligent, educated men to to do that? They should know better, shouldn't they? Well, you'll notice that this comes out of the academy. Mm -hmm. And what you have to understand is these guys in the academy... They basically have three goals. Uh, goal number one is to get tenured. Uh, goal number two is to get published. And goal number three is to be recognized by your academic peers. peers. Yeah. And so if that's my goal, and of course I can't judge people's hearts, but you asked mm, me no, a, a right. pointed question. This yeah. is my assessment of it. You know, if your goal is academic uh, acceptance, you've got to meet people halfway. You're not going to get there being a premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensationalist, young earth creationist, even though that's what the text says. So mm-hmm. my goal as a pastor is totally different. I'm not, you know, trying to climb the academic ladder. I'm just trying to be faithful to what the Bible says, you know, to teach the full counsel of God's Word. But these guys in academia, it's completely different. There's a different set of uh, influences on them, and I think this progressive dispensationalism comes out of that, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So their perspective on uh, the kingdom is the kingdom is now but not yet. Um how are they? How are progressive dispensationalists building into the kingdom today? Well, they talk an awful lot about something called the holistic gospel, um, where they they believe, and I've got the quotes in the book where they say it in their own writings that the function of the church is to change the structures of society. And, of course, that, by the way, fits really nicely with critical race theory. If you believe the structures of the United States are inherently racist, which I I don't, I reject that viewpoint. But if you believe that, then, then then the function of the church is to change those structures. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't find that in the Great Commission. Uh, What Jesus said is, go make disciples. You know, we're here to, to reach and teach, to evangelize and disciple. We're living in Satan's world. You know, not that we can't have some kind of positive influence on society while we're here, but reforming the culture, you know, is not our major task. And so I think progressive dispensationalism moves us away from the Great Commission and moves us into more of this holistic gospel 
you know, mentality. By the way, if you want to change society, look at what Paul did in Acts 19, where he evangelized everybody there when he was at the school of Tyrannus, remember, for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And what did people stop doing? They stopped buying their idols mm-hmm. because they were saved now. And so he indirectly drove the idol makers out of business. I mean, if you want to change society, evangelize the world. Yeah. Then society will change. Well, yeah, he upset the <laughs> idol makers there for a little bit, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. So we're talking about it's it's a foundation for the social gospel then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that'd make complete sense. Yeah, social, yeah. social gospel being the, you know, you, you, you do social good. Well, let me back up. We should do social good, but we should always use that as a platform to preach the gospel. In other words, if we're just involved in Habitat for Humanity and all this kind of stuff that has nothing to do with the gospel, then we're missing our purpose. Because what good does it do to feed someone's stomach for 24 hours if they go into an eternal hell? How much of a balance do you think there should be between evangelism, and this is kind of not not having to do with your book, but evangelism and, and just commenting on what you said and doing things like um, um, outreaches with food, you know, setting up a, a, a help, homeless shelter and those kind of things. Do you think that can distract from actually doing king, uh, church work rather than building a kingdom? Yeah, my wife was just saying that that lapse there was her fault. She said some her stuff somehow attached here, but she's okay. she's she's got. We've I think we fixed it. So sorry yep. about that. Okay. She repented. She's repented. Yeah, she should have blamed it on the kids. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, you know, holistic gospel. It's really easy to get confused about what your purpose is. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I I believe humanitarian work, first of all, I'm not even sure that's the job of the church. I'm unconvinced Mm -hmm. that that's a job God gave to the church, particularly when Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. Now, if an individual Christian wants to get involved in that, then great. But I also think they should use it as a platform to share the gospel. You know, the moment the humanitarian work takes over, and the gospel becomes secondary or non-existent, you're now dealing with another gospel. It's what it was called earlier, the social gospel. So it's a very careful balancing act with all of that. Yeah. Um, let's talk briefly about what's what are the requirements for a kingdom, and why is the progressive dispensationalism's kingdom now not sufficient to meet those requirements? Well... <laughs> You know, Dr. Pentecost had his three uh, requirements for a kingdom, you know, a, a ruler, a realm, and a reign. I, I'm a little bit different in the sense that I think the requirements are laid out in the prophets. You know, in order to say that the kingdom is here, the requirements of the prophets, you know, who are a lamp shining in a dark place, um you have to say those requirements are here. So you have to have people, you know, when they die at the age of 100, they're thought to be accursed because they died so young. 
Uh, you have to have the sun seven times brighter than what it currently is. Isaiah 30, verse 27. You have to have a millennial temple. You know, you have to have a, uh, a river of river flowing out of the millennial temple into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea comes back to life. We uh, don't have that right now, huh? <laughs> no, I've, I've been to the Dead Sea. Uh, yeah, you have to have a child able to stick his hand into the cobra's nest and not be harmed. You have to have peace in the world kingdom. You have to have agricultural prosperity all over the earth. You have to have no more war. And, you know, the reason progressive dispensationalists and others reject that is they have a hermeneutic which says the New Testament changes the old. Now, they're not as radical as the replacement theologians, which says the New Testament abolishes the old in that sense, but they think it the New Testament adds these complementary layers of meaning that aren't found. So they, you know, they don't have to see correspondence between what's happening today and what the prophets predict in order to dogmatically say the kingdom is here. So it really relates to their hermeneutic. Yeah, I mean, one way progressive dispensationalists is kind of throw it away is if they make the Abrahamic covenant conditional, right? Oh, oh, the Israelites, oh, this is the final time they rejected Christ. All right, now their land's taken from them. But you mentioned in their book there's a difference between owning the land and possessing it. Can you explain that difference, the difference? Right. Good question. Right. Well, just to be clear, because I want to represent people fairly, I don't think progressive dispensationalists have gone that far by saying that the okay. Abrahamic covenant is conditional. Okay. I, I do think replacement theologians have done that, um, but they haven't done it quite. Quite, they're 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 trying to find a mediation between the two camps. But you know, it's it's studying an interplay between the Abrahamic and Mosaic. The Abrahamic gives the nation of Israel ownership over her blessings. What are her blessings? Land, seed, and blessing. So she will forever own those. Now, whether any generation enjoys what they own, they have to comply with the Mosaic law. And according to John 5, the Mosaic law points to Jesus. In other words, they have to enthrone the king on the king's terms. Mm -hmm. And until that happens, Israel owns but doesn't enjoy. Only when she enthrones the king on the king's terms will she both own and enjoy, and then the kingdom will have, have be an arrival. So you can have the whole world get saved, but if tiny Israel remains in unbelief, you can't have the kingdom on the earth. Conversely, you can have the whole world reject Christ. But if tiny Israel nationally believes, then she will have complied with the Mosaic Covenant. She'll be the owner and the enjoyer, and the kingdom will come. So, so everything is riding on what Israel is going to do with her Messiah. And I'm, what I'm talking about here is a national leadership decision to enthrone the king. I'm not talking about individual Jews getting saved periodically in the church age. And so, by covenantal design, the whole thing's riding on Israel's shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds to me like that's what the whole purpose of the 70th week of Daniel yeah. is, to move Israel into that position. 
Well, a very good piece of theology that was given to me by the guy that led me to Christ is God knocks us down so we look up. Yeah. And um, I think God has worked in all of our lives that way. But prophetically, there's a big knocking down coming for Israel. And it's going to happen right in the middle, I believe, when the man that they've trusted in as their false messiah betrays them by replicating what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 167 BC and desecrates their temple. Boy, they're going to be knocked so low when that happens, but that's a good thing because that creates their openness for the true Messiah, uh, which they'll be open to in the second half of the tribulation. Your book goes through all of the texts that the progressive dispensationalists use to assert that they're correct. And if you, if you just read through those verses without any um, other context to help you understand them, like your book, for example. If you just read those verses, they do sound pretty convincing. Like, for example, in Luke 17, 21, it states that the kingdom of God is in your midst, or is as some texts say, the kingdom of God is within you. Mm -hmm. So how do you explain that to people so that they avoid the confusion of believing that the spiritual kingdom has begun at 70 AD, for example, and that we're in it now. Mm -hmm. What's the best route to explain it clearly to them? Well, the best route is to look at all of those passages by themselves. Because what, what people do when they're trying to prove their theology is they, like you just said, they, they, they put them all in parenthesis, all the citations. And you look at all of them and you say, wow, we must be in a spiritual form of the kingdom. But if you go through each passage by itself, you'll see very fast that those passages are not saying what they think, what everybody thinks they're saying. When Jesus says the kingdom is in your midst, he's obviously, he can't be saying the kingdom is inside of you because he's talking to the Pharisees, you know, who are trying mm -hmm. to kill him. I mean, so the kingdom is not inside of them. And when he says the kingdom is in your midst, all he's saying is, I'm here, guys, uh, enthrone me. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what I'm doing for you right now in terms of casting out demons and different things will be a reality for the whole nation and the whole world. And you develop that conclusion just by looking, reading the passage in its context. And don't stop in Luke 17. Do it over in Matthew 12. Do it over in uh, Colossians 1. Uh what is it, 12 through 14 that everybody quotes? Uh, mm -hmm. And you'll see individually these passages aren't, you know, when you look at them contextually, individually, they're not talking about a, a present spiritual form of the kingdom at all. Yes. So the key, again, is hermeneutics. Context, context, context. Going back and seeing what's before and what's after, if you're going to actually understand um, a confusing yeah. passage. Uh, I, I found it interesting that you pointed out Laodicea means to be ruled by the people. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting argument you could use to support elder rule? Yeah, uh, that uh, passage, you know, Laos, people, Decao, ruling, Laodicea, being made up from those words, means the people ruling. 
And it's sort mm-hmm. of funny you mentioned progressive dispensationalists. They they like to use um, that as uh, what Jesus says to Laodicea there as evidence that the kingdom is in force. Well, if the kingdom is in force, Jesus is doing a lousy job running it because he's outside the door of his own church, you know, trying to get into the church. Let me in. <laughs> And so, you know, people are into congregational rule. I mean, that's Laodicea. It's the, it's the people's whims ruling. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why a local church is supposed to be governed by a plurality of godly men whose character has to be confirmed according to specific criteria that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I mean, the function of a church is to bring believers to maturity. It's not to mm-hmm. let the inmates run the asylum, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the same chapter, um, my grandpa just mentioned, that you also mentioned several other things, right? Jesus is going to rule in the kingdom with a rod of iron. Obviously, now, there's no rod of iron, from what I can see, not outside of the church, in the church, right? There's still plenty of um, apostasy or people not following the faith. There's they're still saved, right? But they're not following the way they should be. Um, another thing is you talk about um, not just the rod of iron, but also talking about silence, right? The people, progressive dispensationalists, they point to the New Testament and they say, nowhere does it say that Israel's still God's chosen people, right? You don't see in Matthew 28, God Israel is God's chosen people. So they kind of argue from a silence of the New Testament since it doesn't mention it specifically. How can you argue pretty well against that? So why don't you put it in your own words? How can well, we fight back against that? Right. Well, just to be fair, I want—I don't want to misrepresent people. I don't think now what you're describing re- replacement theologians do. Okay. But I don't mm-hmm. think progressive dispensationalists have gone so far that they've chopped off Israel completely. They—they they okay. still believe in a future for Israel. Right. In my opinion, they've watered it down some because Israel is just one of many nations in the millennium, whereas my understanding of prophecy is she's the head, you know, and not the tail. She's preeminent. But you're right. Replacement theologians think that an argument that doesn't mention Israel in the New Testament means that somehow Israel's program is canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, let's assume there is a silence which, by the way, there's not, but let's assume there is. That in and of itself cancels nothing. I mean, if I tell students, uh, hey, at the end of the semester, your paper's due, and I tell them that at the beginning of the semester, but I never mention it the rest of the semester, that doesn't cancel what I originally said at the beginning of the class. The paper's paper still, still due. And so it, even mm-hmm. if the New Testament is silent on Israel, the Old Testament has plenty of information telling us that God has a plan for Israel. By the way, why would God have to repeat everything that he already said in the Old Testament? I mean, we wouldn't need an Old Testament if that if that was so. If the New Testament just repeated the Old, I guess what I meant was we wouldn't need a New Testament if he's just mm-hmm. repeating what's in the Old. So silence is not a cancellation. Now, having said that, it's true that Israel is not as prominent in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament, but it is mentioned many places. Romans 11 being the most conspicuous, 
you know, Paul says as clearly as it can be said, all Israel will be saved. Uh, the New Testament, Jesus says, you have, who have followed me in the resurrection will govern the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Matthew 19, verse 28. And when you get to Revelation 20 and verse 9, Satan runs an attack at the end of the millennium against the beloved city. I mean, what's the beloved city? It's the city of Jerusalem. Why is Satan attacking Jerusalem? Because he's not a replacement theologian. Satan isn't. He knows Jerusalem is the headquarters of the Messiah. So, you know, cancellation is not, uh, a silence is not the same thing as a cancellation. Hmm. However, having said that, the New Testament does reiterate Israel, although it doesn't mention it as prominently as you find in the Old Testament. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. Um, the There is uh, some confusion over the current roles of Jesus Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, some believe that that's also the uh, throne of David, that the two are synonymous. Uh, let's clarify the difference between the two and the, the roles that Jesus Christ plays in those two. Yeah, right. Well, if you, if you look, for example, at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, it distinguishes those two thrones. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And the verb there is the future tense. As I also overcame and sat down, I think it's Eris there, with, uh, with yeah, my father right. on his throne. So obviously there's two thrones. There's the current throne that he's now on, the father's throne. And then there's the future throne on the earth in Jerusalem, you know, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, that currently is unoccupied. So what people are trying to do is they're trying to take those two thrones and merge them together. Now that will happen in the eternal state, but we're not in the eternal state yet. We're in the church age. And so those are two completely separate thrones. And so Jesus, you know, to say he's on David's throne would, would mean I could go over to Jerusalem and shake his hand because David's throne is always, every single time it's always portrayed as earthly. So Jesus is not on David's throne. He's on the father's throne and he's not functioning now as king. Look at the state of the world as an example. There's no Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. So he's not functioning now as king. He's, he's going to be king one day. Just like David in uh, 1 Samuel 24, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 16, was anointed as king before he actually began to reign as king in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 5, because there was a usurper on the throne. You know, his name was Saul. So in the same way, Jesus is anointed as king. We know he's going to get there one day. He's going to reign on David's throne, but right now there's a usurper that has to be deposed. God, the, you know, he'll be deposed at the end of the tribulation period. And until that happens, Jesus can't be reigning on David's throne, reigning as king. Where, where he is now is he's 
at the Father's right hand on the Father's throne. He's destined to be king, but he's not yet reigning as king because the book of Hebrews says right now he has a totally different ministry where he's functioning as high priest you know, yeah. after the order yep. of Melchizedek. So Christ's three offices are prophet, priest, king. Prophet, first coming, priest, currently, in his current session. But the day in history will come where he will be king over the earth, and that won't happen until you have a repentant uh, national Israel. Yeah, let's say I understand that. I understand Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, he's interceding for us, right? Jesus is still... in. Um, still in charge, but it's in a different way. Now the thousand years comes in, right? Jesus is crowned as the Davidic king. But after the thousand years, the earth is destroyed. How does that process work? Is Jesus still on the Davidic throne after that, after the earth is destroyed and made new? How does that process work? Well, that's interesting. There's sort of an adjustment as you move from the millennial kingdom to the eternal state. And it kind of looks to me the two thrones merge together at that point. I think you'll see that in... um, if I remember right, Revelation uh, 22, you know, in verse 1. Let me just, if I could, I'll just read that real, real fast. Revelation 22, 1. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, a, uh, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So you don't see the distinction anymore. Between the two thrones, like you saw in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. But that only happens after the earth, as you mentioned, is dissolved by fire. Because God, through the last Adam, has already reasserted what was lost in Genesis 1. That's what the thousand years are for. So now God is, is free to start afresh. And since this world has been contaminated by sin, he dissolves it by fire and replaces it with a new heavens, a new earth. And so sort of the story of the Bible is from a garden to a city, you know, with a in between. And with the asserting of Christ's regal authority, an already done deal, because the thousand years are over, we're, fr- we're free to... God, God is pretty good at starting over. You notice in the Bible, he starts over with eight people after the flood, and then he... Discipline that generation that came out of Egypt. So he started all over with the kids um, in Numbers 13 and 14. And here's just another example of it. The regal authority of Christ has been asserted. God is the winner of history. So let's just melt everything down because of the sin problem. And let's start all over with the new heavens and new earth. And that's when the two thrones merge together, uh, but not beforehand. Okay. All right, so I got that down, right? In Second Peter, oh, you can go. In Second Peter three ten, it says, "But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat." That's what we we're just talking about. But you go into um, le- at length about what "pass away" means. Now, there's another passage, Second Corinthians five seventeen, which says, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have." passed away and behold all things have become new but it's not the same kind of passing away because the one is the argument that the whole earth is burned up and done away with where the christian when he when he becomes a believer 
the old things pass away, but his body is not burned up. Can you kind of reconcile that those two usages of pass away and how can they mean different things contextually? Do you understand what I'm asking, first of all? Well, yes, yeah. It's um, it's a difference of the view of the eternal state. Some view it as a renovation. Right. Some view it as an ex nihilo new creation. And you'll find good people on both sides. You know, my understanding of it is it's the millennium, which is the renovated earth. The eternal state is a new earth. And a lot of it relates to pass away. Um, John says, what happened to the old earth? It passed away. And that same verb that's used in Revelation 21 verse 1 for passed away is also used in verse 4 where it says sin itself, death itself has passed away. So I don't think sin or death is renovated. It's just gone. And so in the same sense, the old earth is gone. And it has to be done with because Paul says in Romans 8 that Adam's sin caused all of creation to groan. I mean, as groaning is going on, it affected everything. And so God can't, you know, just, in my opinion, slap a coat of fresh paint over it. It has to be completely dissolved and replaced with the new heavens and new earth. And in fact, the eternal city, which I think is now hovering over the earth, and I get that from Galatians 4.26, it describes the eternal city with the present tense verb. That city is not even fit to descend to this planet, you know, because of original sin. It's only going to come down after this earth has been completely destroyed by fire. Uh, all the effects of original sin are gone now that eternal city can descend. So for those reasons, I'm not a renovation guy. You know, I'm an ex nihilo, new creation guy in the last two chapters of the Bible. Hmm. So in that time, in the thousand-year reign, in that new earth, we as Christians, right— we're not Jews. We don't take the blessings of the Jews. How do we relate with all that? What what what's our role in that kingdom in the coming kingdom? You're talking about the eternal, yeah, in the eternal state, the, uh, the kingdom and the eternal state. Let's do both. Well, in the in the, in the Messiah's kingdom, Jesus's kingdom, you know, it does seem that Israel is prominent. You know, the nations will have to go um, to Jerusalem to worship the King. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. So Israel has preeminence over the Gentiles. But it does talk about how we as the church are going to rule and reign with Christ. Revelation 5, verse 10. So somehow in that reigning process, we as resurrected members of the church are given authority in that, in that kingdom. So I wish every detail you know, was explained to us. But that's really the best I can do with the limited revelation that God has given us. And then by the time you get to the eternal state, you know, it is true that everyone will be resurrected. But when you look at the foundations of the city, they're named after the apostles of the Lamb. And when you look at the gates, they're named after the 12 tribes. So, some way, somehow, God is allowing a permanent reminder of the distinction between Israel and the church, uh, even in the eternal state, because the, the 
apostles are the foundations of the church, Ephesians 2.20, and the tribes are the foundations of Israel. So somehow there's, there's still a reminder of that distinction. How it all is going to work out, I don't know, but that's the best I can do. Let's go to the applicational section of your book. Absolutely. Uh, why does it matter to us today? You argue in your book that, it, that to take the kingdom now view, that he's reigning spiritually in our hearts uh, view, that that has led to all sorts of abuses uh, in the church today. Uh, we already talked about one, so the social gospel, but you also talk about power evangelism as uh, one abuse, and the other was, remind me. Oh, I talk about uh, several of them. Um, uh, uh, pros- yeah. yeah, prosperity gospel. Gospel, that was Prosperity, it. power. Yeah, power evangelism, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. We spend so much time as conservative Christians shooting at a false doctrine we, don't, we, don't, we think is wrong. And what's interesting is we don't spend our time looking at the foundation that that false doctrine grew out of. Um, so you take, for example, power evangelism. You know, that's the teaching of John Wimber and the Vineyard. And that's a teaching that basically says if if you don't have signs and wonders happening in your evangelism, then it's not true evangelism. Um and we could argue with that till the cows come home, uh, mm-hmm. because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not necessarily by seeing miracles. But what's interesting about that whole discussion is Wimber got that idea from a guy named George Ladd. George Ladd was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, and Ladd taught Wimber at that seminary, the already not yet view of the kingdom. So in um, Wimber's book on power evangelism, he, he gives full credit to George Ladd for the view. So, you know, you get into power evangelism, a fundamental disagreement you could raise is whether we're in the kingdom or not. And if we're not in the kingdom, then out the window goes power evangelism. Because if we're in the kingdom, you should see the miracles of the kingdom. But if we're not in the kingdom, then Mm -hmm. miracles would be more rare today. And so that whole conversation, it's interesting. People get get real heated on that. Mm -hmm. But there's a more fundamental question. The question is, are we in the kingdom or not? And where you end up there really dictates your view on power evangelism. It also dictates your view on, from what I've read at the end of the chapter, influences your view on the gospel. Like whether lordship salvation versus free grace versus all these different different options. So how does believing in, say, the kingdoms now, how does that influence lordship salvation or your view on the gospel? Well, you know, it's interesting. Where did lordship salvation come from? Uh, a lot of people will say it came from John MacArthur. But that view was around long before John MacArthur popularized it. One of the most prominent proclaimers of that view academically was a man named Mm -hmm. Kenneth Gentry. And Kenneth Gentry is a rabid um, replacement theology kingdom now preterist. And his views on the kingdom go real well with lordship salvation. 
Lordship salvation is the idea that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. And that fits really well with kingdom now theology, because if we're in the kingdom, he's reigning with a rod of iron. And so you can't have carnal Christians, you can't have backslidden Christians, you can't have, you know, uh, wayward Christians. And so the more kingdom now you become in your approach, I think the more open you are to lordship salvation, you know, mm -hmm. for that reason. So if Jesus is reigning and ruling in your life and in the spiritual kingdom, then you should be submitted to him now in every area of yeah. your life. That's yeah, and if idea. you're not, then I have a right to call into question your salvation. And I have a, I have a right to call, mm -hmm. I'll call into question my own salvation. Right because he's not reigning the way he's supposed to. <laughs> but we're disputing the fact we're disputing the fact that he is not ruling and reigning here on earth because there is no no land he's ruling over. There's no reign that he is in charge of. There's there's no rules for it. Um, that's to come yet. Yeah. A, a couple other areas that I think this influences um, we haven't really talked about it but dominion theology I think is an area um, and anti-Semitism in the church. Let's talk well, about dominionism is the idea, whether it comes from the right wing or the left wing, you know, it's the idea that we're, our job is to elect Christians to office, and they're supposed to basically bring in the kingdom. And they're actually supposed to re-implement the Mosaic Law. Um, quite, mm -hmm. quite frankly, I don't believe there is such a doctrine because Christians all over the world are suffering. Uh, tell that to a Christian in a Muslim country, you know, who's suffering and runs the prospect of martyrdom. I mean, they're not exercising dominion. So dominion theology really goes very, very well with kingdom now theology. You know, the more kingdom now you are in your theology, the more you think that we're here to rule and reign right now. You have, uh, for example... The false doctrine of the seven mountains mandate. They've got these seven areas of cultural influence that Christians are supposed to take over. Uh, education, media, politics, finance, uh, all that kind of stuff. And it's all related to the idea that we're, we're in the kingdom. So now theology goes perfectly with mm -hmm. dominion theology. And if the second thing you asked about was anti-Israelism or anti-Semitism, you know, if we're currently in the kingdom, because Israel's promises are being fulfilled now spiritually, then who cares about the current state of Israel? They have no function. You know, they have no purpose. Whereas we look at Israel as God has recycled them back into, into their land in unbelief, so one day, once they're saved, on the other end of Daniel's 70th week, he's going to fulfill his covenantal promises in and through them. So that makes us very pro-Israel in our belief system. But if you believe all of Israel's promises have been transferred to the church, what do you do with a bunch of unbelieving Jews in the Middle East? You have a tendency to ignore them or, God forbid, move into the BDS movement which stands for boycott, divest, and sanction the nation of Israel because you think Israel is an apartheid state. And so the more kingdom now you are in your beliefs, the more you're either ignoring or you're against the modern state of Israel. So kingdom now theology actually goes real well 
with anti-Semitism, just like it goes real well with Dominion theology, just like it goes real well with power evangelism, uh, just like it goes real well with the social gospel. And see, this is when people critique these different views, they don't look at the kingdom issue. It's like they're shooting at everything other than the foundation. Well, they would so say the church is the new Israel. Um. Yeah. yeah, and they get that from, uh, well, the word Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament. <laughs> it always means Israel. It never refers to the church or to the Gentiles. And even in Galatians 6.16, the famous Israel of God passage, uh, Paul is just giving praise to the Hebrew believers within the church. He's not saying that the church is the Israel of God as a whole. And so it's another case where you're not they're not looking at passages individually. Once you look at each passage individually, you'll see that the church or the Gentile believers are never called Israel. You know, Israel is a technical context, name. Context, context. Yeah, that always means the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, so Kingdom Now theology then really has practical applications to the church in general. Is it su to such an extent that um, churches that are Kingdom Now uh, can work with other churches, like, say, ours, that are not? Uh, is it all about you just, as long as you just love Jesus, that's all you need? Well, um, I think we should all love Jesus, obviously, but the the subtitle of the book is How is Kingdom Now Theology Changing the Focus mm -hmm. of the Church? I mean, if you start working with a church that's really adamant on Kingdom Now Theology, you're working with a group that just has a different focus than what the church is supposed to be doing. So I think it's real hard to work with a church like that. Agreed. Well, I think we've uh, taken up enough of your time. We surely appreciate, um, Andy, your ministry. We appreciate you as a man who is not ashamed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be forthright and to name names and, and just to, to be out there leading the dispensational charge for classic dispensationalism. And uh, we really do appreciate you. And um, I know I personally tell people who don't have a church and they're looking for some good instruction to go to your websites and, and to read your books. Yep. So uh, you are a real inspiration to all of us. And um, just remain steadfast and keep up the good work and uh, don't fall, yeah. brother. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, re, re, remain godly and uh, yeah, do let me tell right. everybody you're so we really appreciate yeah, you. your YouTube channel is awesome. I mean, you put out so much. I mean, you have a Sunday, Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, and two Sundays, so you got like four or five things a week. It's it's crazy. So, I direct how do you do <laughs> it all? <laughs> well, you know, I it's it would be easy for me to say, yeah, it's all my work, but I have <laughs> I have a secret weapon that's my wife. <laughs> and she's the one yeah. that came up with the idea of the YouTube channel. She's the one that uploads videos regularly. She's the one that puts mm -hmm. the thumbnail on there. Um, we just did Pastor's point of view today. I, I wanted to take the day off, mm -hmm. but she wouldn't let me. <laughs> so we, we just did it. So, you know, 
it would be easy for me to say, hey, look at look at all this, but if I didn't have a man in my life, uh, none of this would be a reality. Um, when mm-hmm. she said she wanted to, she wanted to start a YouTube channel and I'm like, well, okay, no one's, I mean, maybe my mom and dad will watch it, but no one's going to watch it. So I was wrong and she was right. So the fact that you're saying you're blessed by it is, you know, testimony to her. So obviously the credit goes to Jesus, but he, he gave me a secret weapon in my life. Yeah. That's awesome. Glory always goes to God. Praise God for. Is there anything else you want to tell, let our listeners know about? Any new books? I know I just uh, last couple months I read "Falling Away," your little pamphlet that was awesome. Shared it with a friend. Is there anything else that's coming out, or you want our listeners to know? Website, anything like that? Well, you know those those other books. um, You know, people might want to get those. I appreciate you promoting those at the beginning. Um, But I just want to thank you guys for a doing the podcast and b being interested in these kind of subjects and then see actually taking the time to read the book. You know, it's obvious that you all have read it very carefully to, you know, based on the questions that you asked. So thank you for what you do. Awesome. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Well, I think that's yep. it, Gabriel. It should be good. All right. I just want to say right. bye to everybody. Well, we appreciate your all time. All right. Thank you. All right. And, and God bless everyone. Sign off. Bye. you for listening to another episode of the book podcast if you liked what you heard and want to support us like follow subscribe on any podcasting platform on youtube on facebook instagram or twitter simply type in at hear the book pod at hear the book pod thank you see you next time